Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Dalitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and as always here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Yes, here I am. I'm just excited again. <laughs> uh, I'm a, I must admit, one of my, one of my sort of, uh, I, it, it's sort of a two-edged sword, but the, you know, there's that term that seems to come in. You know, I'm super excited about, uh, about being here. And uh, I think you can't just get super excited about everything, but but I certainly am always <laughs> I'm always thrilled to partake because we get to talk to these amazingly interesting people, people that you know, to my horror, I've never heard of, uh, only because I haven't looked far enough. So this is the value of uh, one of the values of our podcast is it brings to our attention and then consequently to our listeners' attention people who are really interesting and need to be noticed. To be honest, Richard, there are just so many people in our world of psychotherapy that we can't be expected to, you know, know all of them. But uh, yeah, with you, I'm with you. Uh, I'm so excited to meet new people and people that have been doing amazing work for a long time. Now, one of those uh, is uh, the man we're going to meet today, Dr. Doug Wise. He's been working with sex addicts for 30 years, and uh, he's uh, written a whole stack of books. He's been on uh, television and documentaries and uh, very well known in the United States. Very pleased to be able to connect with him today. Yes, and his wonderful heart-to-heart centre there in Colorado Springs has been uh, uh, people come over, uh, they do all kinds of outreach outreach work, and another fabulous wounded healer. Uh, you know, yes. suffering his own problem, couldn't find res- where the answers were, created them themselves, but over time has built up a fabulous, uh, a fabulous research base uh, that that, mm. that validates a lot of his work. And uh, uh, and just remember, folks, uh, you know, as you listen, if you want to touch into all this stuff, you want to um, perhaps look at this stuff more deeply, please come in and join us at the scienceofpsychotherapy.net, our academy, where for just a small monthly stipend, uh, you can access our courses and get certificates that you can utilize for ongoing education, which we know is terribly important. But mainly, you can just get great information, great knowledge, great experience, and great practical applications. Absolutely. We'd love to have you as part of the tribe. Well, for now, Richard, let's go across to Colorado Springs and talk to Dr. Wise. Dr. Wise, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to meet you. Well, it's great to be here, Richard and Matt, and uh, appreciate what you guys are doing. Yeah, thanks. We, we were so pleased uh, the, to to uh, you know uh, have this invitation, this possibility of creating. And we we've been looking around at your website, which is absolutely fascinating. And we'll have all that information in the show notes for our, uh, our listeners and viewers. But I think uh, we've said a few things about you to to start off. But maybe we just sort of throw it to you. Uh, how did you get yourself? into this place now where 30 to 40 years of doing this amazing work with sexual addiction? Sure. Well, mine actually starts in conception. I was conceived in adultery. Um, my mom got a divorce, you know, found another guy. Um, and so then she introduced me to pornography when I was about maybe about 12 or 13, became fully sexually addicted, was sexually abused later that summer, and then got an alcohol and drugs. So totally a mess. And then had a spiritual awakening and started to heal, but I didn't get better from my sexual addiction. So that still stayed for a while. And uh, I've been sober now for what, 37 years, tested by a polygraph, no pornography, no self-behavior, no sex outside of marriage. So you can be free your entire life. But that put me into a career. Uh, I was going into 
I went to college and went to, uh, went to seminary, got my degrees, and, and that took me into counseling. And uh, we wrote our first book where we were on, I mean, uh, Phil Donahue, remember him? Yeah, He's done yeah, Oprah, yeah. Dr. Phil, Good Morning America, so many shows. We have movie and documentary made about our practice. And so we've written many books on the president of the American Association of Sex Addiction Therapy. So I train counselors actually all, literally all over the world on how to treat sexual addicts. Someone who feels really stuck and addicted can actually be free if they understand how they got there and what they need to do to get better. The proof is in the pudding, I guess, you know, when um, you, you, if you carry, you carry that authority because you, mm-hmm. you've sort of been there and, and been through it. Um, and so uh, how much of your personal story sort of, you know, goes into the, the sort of therapy that you do? Well, it goes into the solutions because I had to learn the solutions without any books, without it. Because, you know, I start getting sober when I was uh, in my early 20s and the book on sex addiction, the first one that came out was I was two years clean. OK, so there wasn't anyone teaching me how to get free. I mean, I had to get I had to learn. So all that I learned, we'd like to have a workbook called 100 Exercises. Well, those are things I learned. OK. And then, you know, some guy can pick it up for like a, you know, a, a price, you know, because now. And we're so much evolved into this field. We really do know how to help people get better. Uh, you know, a lot of us early pioneers, we we kind of made all the uh, headway on that pro- on that process. And now the process is pretty clear. I've helped thousands and thousands of men and women uh, move through the uh, sexual addiction into a healthy life, a better life, better sex, better marriages, better relationships, better dads, moms, and they and they like any addict, they they were now living. And, and I think this this term is so interesting, and the fact that also there's thousands of, of of people, and I can I can almost think back on my life and and see there's a line there's a line you cross because of course there's as you say healthy sexual interest uh, healthy mm-hmm. sexual appetites, um, and we have healthy um, uh, sort of uh, I suppose recreational drug uh, interests and mm-hmm. things, but they don't become addictions until something. What actually uh, defines or or is that line that we cross where we become addicted to the process well, it's, what happens? Like it's closest to food addiction because like you need food right and then there's people who become addicted to sugars carbs and caffeine and and just food in general they go to food to medicate and they're medicating either past abuses abandonments neglects or present stresses in the same way a sex act is someone who medicates through self-behavior pornography sexual behavior with others or toys and they are medicating either sexual abuse. 80% have been sexually abused like myself and um, are, you know, they've been abandoned, neglected. They have issues that they couldn't resolve at 12 or 13 years old. They found this particular drug of, of, of sex and it worked. Okay, They got to escape. Life was good for a little bit and they became addicted to the medicine. And uh, it's, it's very, I mean, this is millions and tens of millions of people. This has been around, you know, since the beginning of time. This is nothing new. Yeah, no, I think it's it, it's and I think it's an important uh, it's an important line that uh, that crosses that becomes you know because addiction is where where the act becomes um, self satisfying and self demanding mm-hmm. rather than you know sort of just generally pleasurable because because I do remember I remember I didn't I was, I was actually quite grateful that I didn't actually perform you know have a, a, a sexual act until you know my late teens because once I you know, after the first time, I thought, this is great. I, you know, I love this. Yeah. And if it's inside of a relationship, it's great. But what happens with a lot of sex addicts is it's inside of an object relationship. Because many times you get asked the question, you know, Dr. Weiss, what's the difference between a high libido and a sex addict? 
right? Because they're both having sex, say, four times a week, right? It's not the number. It's, it's, it's why they're having it. The, the, the someone with who's having relational sex, there's eye contact, they're talking, they're in a relationship, they're connecting to the person, and there's a deep level of satiation after the encounter. With the addict, they're not with the person. They're in a fantasy state or an altered state or remembering things from the past or someone from the past. Uh, they're disconnected from their partner. They're not satisfied after the sex act. There's an empty feeling, and they want more and more and more. They're driven to have some kind of connection that they're not getting because they're disconnected in an altered state. And so whatever's in that altered state is what they're actually connecting to, not to the person. Or if they're doing, and I've done, I'm unique in this way. I've actually done more than 5,000 masturbation porn histories, okay? And so with sex acts, I'm not someone who just like sits around and thinks about this stuff, right? So oftentimes they've had between one and 6,000 sexual encounters with the object world prior to their first encounter with the real person. So their wow. actual sexual template is conditioned to object relationship sex. So relational sex is a skill they don't possess. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Versus someone who they have sex, you know, had a girlfriend for, you know, months or a while. They, have, they make love to them. They feel connected to them. They learn that it's about that connection, that relationship. And they want to have that kind of sexuality. Well, the person who's, you know, ring the bell, feed a dog into object relationship sex thousands of times doesn't know how to do the relational piece and that and that's the where you know on-screen pornography becomes a, a, a you know just a serious problem what what's the the process of how does that work in well it's escalated the whole thing because now you and i are probably closest they made your hair's a little grayer but we're probably close in age and we had to go like steal the pornography or i was down at the gas station or someplace like that now you have six-year-olds with self who have the world's largest, worst perverse porn store ever created in the history of mankind. And they can flip through hundreds of images by the time we would get through one magazine. And the type of what they're looking at is way different than our little Playboy and Penthouse stuff that we would go get. So it's, it's definitely escalated it. And actually more women now are involved in sexual addiction because of the internet, uh, the access, the uh, the illusion of privacy <laughs> that AI is quickly removing, but we, you know, it, it's it's a it's because it can be done in secret and it meets a need. You know, it becomes very addictive. Yeah. Now, can I ask about self awareness? So this, so how aware are people about this? You know, we're addicted to an object to to you know to self medicate. Um, mm. What sort of awareness is there? Is there do you cross a threshold before you suddenly become yeah. aware that this is what's going on? You do, and it's a great question because any any sex addict, male or female, who's listening to this right now already knows they're addicted. Mm -hmm. They already tried. They they tried to quit. They've had consequences in their life, and yet they kept using. They've lost relationships, sometimes jobs. Um, they have this core belief that if you really knew what I was up to, you would in no way love me. I'm truly unlovable because of what I do. So they had this kind of core belief that feeds the whole shame in the cycle and all that kind of stuff, right? And so they already know, and they, they've decreased other activities in their life to increase the time that they have. So oftentimes they're exhausted because they're up to two or three o'clock in the morning looking at porn or watching movies or stories or whatever they're doing. And so their normal life gets smaller as their addiction gets bigger. You know, uh, there's an old Chinese proverb, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. And once you're in that second and third stage, you know that you're out of control. You can feel it. 
uh, because you're looking for opportunities to be alone with a computer instead of your spouse. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this, this, um, this experience uh, within relationships. I mean, uh, I mean, there's two things to look at: the 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 uh, addictive behaviour within the relationship, and then the addictive behaviour outside of it. And and I, I know I'm just uh, been reading some uh, other bits and pieces before that. Um, uh, partners of of sex sex addicts often feel that that their 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 partner is a narcissist because they they behave oh, in this sort of uh, insensitive way. What are some of these processes? Yeah, just how does well, that actually, respond? I have a whole product called Sex Addiction, Intimacy, Anorexia, and Narcissism, because uh, when people fly in for five days, and we've been doing that for about twenty plus years, right? We give them an MMPI, which is a psychological test, and so I've probably done more than a thousand of those. So I actually have statistical proof of whether an addict is a narcissist or not. Now, before I give you the answer on that, when women generally go on Google and they look up narcissism, they are literally experiencing those symptoms with their husband, but they're not narcissists because in the DSM, it says, if someone has an active addiction, do not give them the narcissism diagnosis because it's not characterological, it's developmental, because addictions rob you of spiritual, emotional, moral development. So you're dealing with a 14-year-old who happens to be 50 years old, okay? But Mm. that's why you're experiencing the narcissism symptoms. But in in our research, I had an intern go through all my MMPIs over like seven years, and very few were actually diagnosed narcissistic personality disorder, less than the general population. Okay. However, the wife is experiencing the symptoms, but she's not experiencing the symptoms because of narcissism. She's experiencing the symptoms of narcissism because he's an addict. Yeah. And this is, this is where I think, you know, we need to, uh, and we do sometimes we talk about narcissistic and, uh, you know, uh, narcissist like um, just to give us a, a, a language uh, sort of a common way of seeing it. But then, of course, uh, people that quickly extend that saying, oh, you're a narcissist. And I suppose then, but then the the, the partner is also looking for uh, some kind of explanation why to well, make them is. feel better. She is, because we've done research on a partner betrayal trauma, 144 women, and we gave about nine or 12 scales before and after. And what's interesting, there's three populations, those who married to sex addicts, those who've experienced infidelity, and those who are married to intimacy and rexics. And you would think because of three populations, you'd have three different scores. But they were generally within one or 2%. The PTSD was off the charts. Depression was off the charts. The self-esteem that was damaged, the sexual self-esteem that was damaged, whether they were being neglected sexually or they were cheated on or, they, or their husband was into pornography. And so they're in legitimate betrayal trauma pain. Okay, and they are trying to find the solution as to why am I in this pain? And when they come across narcissism, it does, it is similar as far as what they're experiencing. It's just not based in narcissism. Right. Just like you can be depressed, and you and the reason you're depressed is because you have low testosterone. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're not depressed because of circumstances. Now, as much as a narcissist won't sort of step forward to get help, uh, what is it that um, compels uh, an addict like this to do whatever yeah. it takes to to reach out for help? Great question. There's two things usually. An external crisis is the, by far the majority. 
And that is you got caught. <laughs> your boss caught you. Your mom caught you. Your, your wife caught you. Your husband caught you. You, know, you. you got caught. Your kid caught you, right? So now you got to deal with the two worlds coming together because you have your secret world. Then you have your real world where you go to work and you, you're raising your kids and family and all that. Well, when those merge, you have to address it. That external crisis is by far, I'd say, 90% of why addicts get better. That's what they call hitting bottom, right? Usually the bottom hits you. You don't hit it. Okay. Now, ten percent of them is the internal internal crisis. I can no longer live like this. These are people that are trying to evolve emotionally, spiritually, deal with past issues, real look, going to therapy, looking at their behavioral patterns, and they hit an internal crisis. That says I can no longer be this person. Yeah. So look, looking at what the, the, the as the, the the sexual addiction as as more of a an emergent sort of message about uh, you know this, I've got to look at where where this comes from mm -hmm. uh, rather than just um, rather than just sort of a suggestive thing to stop me stop me being so silly. It's uh, like no, this isn't silly. This is emerging from a whole mm -hmm. bunch of other issues. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Now, once you, once you have um, you know an addict come to you, um, and they are you know they're in a relationship, they're married, they've they've got a partner, then obviously you've got uh, two people at, at, at least that uh, you know have been severely damaged by this behavior. Mm -hmm. So, how do you work, or do you do you just work with the addict, or do you work with you know uh, couples and families together? How, how do you work with? The, the whole and I love talking to you guys. You're really astute. Okay. <laughs> and you're asking better questions than most psychologists I do podcasts with, you know, because you're asking very intuitive questions. So congratulations to both of you, uh, Matt and Richard. That's a great question because then there is a there the, the beginning of our field focused just on the addict. Now, as the president of the American Association for Sex Action Therapy, we deal with all three at one time. And when I say three, I mean the addict, male or female, the spouse and the marriage because the marriage has been traumatized just as much as the partner. And so the marriage itself organically has to heal and needs a set of principles to heal the spouse because of the betrayal, trauma, the hurt, the anger, the rage, the grief, the losses past, present, and future that they have to address. And then the addict, the underdevelopment, the, the immaturity, the, the, cognitive dissonance, the self-absorption, right? <laughs> all that stuff has to also be uh, moving. So they, we have a process in which all three move at the same time. And that seems to be the most synergistic way. Uh, if, if he's healing, she's healing, and the marriage is actually getting the medicine it needs to start standing up and being stronger, that's the, that's the combination that really, truly works. Yeah, well, that really fits in, uh, you know, beautifully with what we talk about a lot is is we've got to look at everything as a dynamic system. You can't mm -hmm. necessarily pull one bit apart without affecting the others. So you might as well work with everything as best you can. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I just wanna, can we, oh, sorry, Matt, do you want to jump in there? With well, that? let's just drill down a bit more into that because okay. so a lot of our listeners are therapists. And so um, the thing that's spinning around in my head is that, well, that seems to be a lot to juggle like especially as a as a as a lone therapist so yeah. are you working it with a team or is it, it and if it's just you how do you manage all of those well, dynamics we, well with the intensive they fly in for five days they're mostly meeting with one therapist but we do have groups and uh, we have telephone groups and so there, there's stuff like that so let me give you the process real quick so even as an individual therapist uh in my team they all work with these couples 
individually and together. So with him, he has his own program. He's doing what we call the five C's, pray, read, call, groups, and, and, and pray again. Okay, do the basic recovery stuff, do the 101 exercise. She's doing a similar program with her workbooks and her group and stuff like that. So she's getting her support outside the marriage. He's getting his support outside the marriage. And then the marriage structure, we, we give them some principles. We call them the three dailies, you know, do two feelings together every day. And we give them a list where they point and they go, I feel blank when, I first remember feeling blank when. So these are all disciplines because disciplines guarantee outcomes. Right. You know, yeah. if you want an apple tree, plant an apple seed. Okay. If you want intimacy, do the disciplines of intimacy. If you want abs, then eat like you want abs. Right. Okay. So disciplines create outcomes. So they do the two feelings, the two praises a day, putting nurturing into the relationship. And they also have a spiritual, whether it's meditation, prayer, depending on their, their faith system and their belief system. And so the marriage is doing that 15, 20 minutes a day. He's doing his thing 15, 20 minutes a day. She's doing her thing 15, 20 minutes a day. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. those disciplines all working together bring synergism. Okay. If they have a conflict, he calls his, his team. She calls his team. They can do couples counseling and move through the process as well. So it works. I mean, uh, we, we actually certify counselors all over the world in all three of these, in partner child trauma, sex addiction, and intimacy anorexia. So the therapist can have that working knowledge of all three at one time. And especially if you have intimacy anorexia, well, that's a whole nother regimen there. Okay, because it's like having an alcoholic who happens to be a bulimic. Okay. Well, and I want to—that was one of the ones I wanted to ask because that that term I saw it on the website. Uh, mm -hmm. You dropped it in intimacy anorexics, but I just want to say briefly before I'd like you to speak to that a little bit because mm -hmm. that's the the opposite end of the the scale. But mm -hmm. that you've you've really done uh, uh, a lot of you're very generous and you've written a lot of books and uh, many of them available on Amazon, which mm -hmm. have these hundred steps, hundred processes, mm -hmm. and talking about uh, yeah. things. So so if you want to access some of the stuff that. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Weiss is talking about it. Just jump on Amazon for a start, you know, mm -hmm. let alone let alone connecting. But anyway, yeah. So so this thing, the the intimacy anorexic, and maybe about what it is, and and have you got a case study that you could just sort of give oh, us a felt sense of it? I bet I you you have. I bet yeah. you. <laughs> so let's, let's just kind of let's go let's go down just a few minutes. The definition is intimacy anorexia is the active with active withholding of emotional, spiritual, and sexual intimacy from your partner or spouse. So. Everyone else gets your affection. Everyone else thinks you're normal. But when you go home, your spouse feels married and alone. So here's the characteristics. You're too busy for them. You blame them for the problems in the relationship. You withhold love, especially the way they desire to be loved. You withhold spiritually. You withhold uh, emotionally, not talking about your feelings. Uh, you withhold sex or you stay disconnected during sex, which still leaves her alone or him alone. Okay. Uh, use anger and silence as a way to control. You have ongoing or ungrounded criticism of your spouse. Sometimes you control around uh, finances, but generally the spouse feels married and alone. So if you're listening and your marriage has had this conversation every few years, I feel alone. We're just roommates. Why are we doing this? We're just managing. We're not relating. We call I call them functionships, not relationships. There's a large chance you're dealing with intimacy anorexia, which is its own addictive process that's stealth. Nobody sees it or experience it but the spouse. So it's not like a disorder where, like, say you're schizoid, well, you're schizoid with everybody. Right. Intimacy yep. anorexia is I am choosing not to give you all of me. And I've had several cases where it happens on the wedding night. There's something about that, that marriage where you can't exit the relationship that can actually activate this thing. Because when you're dating, 
you can always leave, you know, you can always abandon them, reject them, push them away. But when you're married, it's a lot harder process, right? And so I've had, I actually have a YouTube on, you know, we didn't have sex on our wedding night. That's how many times I've heard that story. Okay. All right. So an intimacy anorexic is someone who they might be married 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but they're not connected. They're just going through the motions. They feel alone. They feel resentment because they're not getting their needs met. Sometimes they do things because of the pain that the spouse is, is uh, um, creating inside the marriage. But uh, that's its own trauma. You know, being married and neglected is it's a, it's a form of abuse, but it's the other side of it. It's not the black and blue, call the cops. It's the, you won't understand. I haven't been touched in a month. I haven't been told I'm loved in six months or a year. I haven't had sex in three, five, 10, 15. I've had couples not have sex for 20 years in the same bed. Yes, it's almost it's almost like focusing a, a a projection of of all the difficulties onto onto one iconic representative, and mm-hmm. it's it's like the person that the person that I am supposed to be most intimate with is the one that if I am not intimate with, then that resolves this um, dysfunctional framework of the fact that I don't know how to be intimate or intimacy. So right. intimacy, this thing comes in all the time this close connection to another person mm. and the difficulties we have with that and certainly sexuality is a place where that really comes to the to the fore mm. how how um how messed up are we uh in some well, respects I, think, I mean cultures i mean there's a whole cultures that are anorexic you know where where the people get married and, and they don't have the skills like we're in western culture i mean i have four degrees okay not one of them taught me how to do feelings right. that's i know what you mean yeah you see what i'm saying and so not one of them taught me how to praise another person and so you go in and i'm an educated person so you go into marriage with the best of what your mom and dad did or didn't have the best of what your friends did or didn't have and you're supposed to be able to do this thing. And there's no training, right, on intimacy. I mean, I've done many marriage conferences across the world. And people, they, they're not trained on how to do intimacy. It's not that hard. I mean, I got, what, seven marriage books now. But it needs a set of skills. And we have a book called Upgrade Your Sex Life. I mean, I can't tell you how many couples don't even know how to ask each other for sex. I have them sit in two chairs, face each other, saying, I want you to ask each other for sex. And they look at me like a cow at a new gate. Like, really? I don't I, We've never used our words. We've always kind of like, you know, pat each other's back or hug or we don't use words. I go, I know that's our problem. Okay. <laughs> They're never asked. Okay. And so it's amazing how unskilled we are for genuine intimacy and how beautiful it is when you take someone who comes in th- your door as a sex addict, underdeveloped, gets all these skills and tools and the marriage is working, and the wife is doing her work, and how beautiful this thing looks six months or a year down the road. Okay, not only do they have it, they're able to transmit it because they learned it by skills. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And that's absolutely, a beautiful absolutely. thing to watch this as therapists. And I can I can hear it's it's um, generational too. I mean, this, this oh, you know, yeah. amplifies, uh, you know, where do we learn? And I, I, I hear a lot of these discussions in various um, different countries, uh, saying, uh, you know, this is for, the, you know, your your uh, a graduate, your degrees, your education to teach you. And others say, mm-hmm. no, this is what the parents should teach you. Um, but what's interesting is 
that a lot of kids, when porn became available, said, well, no one's teaching me. I'm going to go find out for myself. But what's made available is dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. Right. And then what happens is they actually have an intimate connection neurologically and chemically. I forget which one you guys are into all that. But when you have sex, you get the highest level of endorphins and, and endogenous opiates. It's the prefrontal cortex of your brain. And boom, you literally attach to whatever that is. And here they're getting the highest chemical reward for a false intimacy. Yeah. To an object that does exactly what you say, shows up when you want to. There is no cost to you emotionally. I'm telling you, if you've done any intimate relationship, it's going to cost you, right? So you learn all these, I call them, you know, kind of space rules because they don't work in the real world. Yeah. Can we, uh, I'd be really interested to hear, uh, you know, maybe you could just sort of make up a composite um, sort of case study about someone that's come into, um, you know, the programs that you've run, um, what they've come into with, and just talk about the process and then, and how they uh, end up. Sure. So, so let's suppose they come in for a five-day intensive at Heart Heart Counseling Center in Colorado Springs. We meet him on Monday. We do the assessments on him, how he became addicted, the six types. We do our assessments on her if there's been abuse or trauma, abortions or things like that. Make sure we got know what the foundation of her development is, so we know what we're dealing with. Then we cover the marriage structures. Make sure the structures are in or out of place. Then we start. Tuesday we move down the road, and the rest of the week we're working on this. If they have trauma, they're doing anger work. They're doing the uh, empty chair forgiveness work. They're doing that kind of stuff. You know, um, he's going to groups. She's going to groups. They're introduced to the 12 steps, right? And so, but they're also introduced to the dailies. We talked about the two feelings, two praises, and prayer on Monday. So by Friday, they've had five days of doing this. And so usually by Wednesday, people are having sex, even if they haven't had sex in a while, because the discipline is creating this feeling of, I like you again. I can't tell you how many times we do other exercises where they say, Right now, I feel as close as the moment when we were on our wedding day, looking you in the eyes. I go, yes, because you're doing a skill that creates intimacy, okay? And so you keep doing that skill, you can build upon that and maintain this and it gets better, actually. So then they go home and they're in their support groups and on the phone, and they do follow up with some of the other therapists, but they're doing the disciplines, they're doing the workbooks. And what happens is he matures emotionally. Okay. She's dealt with her anger. She's working through her grief and the, and the marriage is moving in a positive direction. They're going on dates once a week. They're having sex regularly because they've agreed on that. They understand their sexual expressions of each other. And that's in the upgrade your sex life. They understand how to communicate about sexuality and they're able to do that. And so the marriage starts healing and they start maturing. They're able to start resolving their own problems which is what you want. You want the system to be able to resolve its own issues, to be able to respect one another, hear each other and do that. So it actually is a beautiful thing because a lot of times uh, the guys will come back, um, you know, every quarter for the first year and then every uh, six months or a year annually to do their follow-up polygraphs because we polygraph guys who are sex ex to verify they're telling us the truth, right? Which helps the wives be able to trust, which is a very important ingredient because if you're asking a wife who's been betrayed, who's traumatized to pay out of her account to reestablish the trust instead of letting him pay out of his account mm. and do a yeah. polygraph and verify, okay, I haven't contacted these women. I'm not going to strippers. I haven't looked at porn and let him carry the weight of that while she's healing. And then, so I see these couples sometimes for years later and they come back and they're doing fantastic. They love life. They, they go into what, they're, what they feel they're calling or their sense of being purpose is, and they start manifesting their purpose. And that feels really good for both of them, you know? And so they, they, they do evolve and they yeah. become really good people. 
It's really beautiful. I mean, there's, there's some generalized articles talking about addiction of all, all sort of forms. And, and this idea of, uh, that addiction is, is so often a, uh, a replacement, uh, uh, for failed or non-existent relationship or the inability mm -hmm. to create relationships. And I, and I, I just want to highlight that bit that uh, you said uh, before that the, the porn, the externally objectifying, it's great. There's no issues. There's nothing to deal mm -hmm. with. You don't have to, to do the washing up or, or clean up yourself. Just it, it's so um, uh, not responsible. Uh, I suppose is the the is the thing, and so I think there's some other social issues that that really do uh, get embraced in here, and I can see uh, and imagine people during this five day course coming across some of these things they never learnt, things they never thought about is is also another issue. So, we're, so we're well in, done. We're in a tipping point globally that when they start putting the AI into these sex robots where you don't have to have a relationship at all. We are going to see sexual addiction go to a whole nother level because it's going to be a perfect world for some men who don't have to in any way emotionally give of themselves, get their release every night with a creature that has learned what to say to them. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So Compliance. Population issues. We're going to see a whole lot of issues come up. So we're on the tipping point of a whole nother evolution of blending technology addiction with sexual addiction, mm. with real touch. And when that happens, we're going to see that that's going to be the cocaine of, of sexual addiction. And it's, and it's, and we're not, we're probably less than five to 10 years away from that. Mm. So we're going to see some really crazy stuff coming down the, down the pike. Cause I'm watching some of these things evolve. Right. And, and the fallout, it will be exactly the same as it always has been. And that's the destruction of, re of true relationship. Absolutely. And the isolation of the soul, the un un undeveloping of a soul. Because if a soul's medicated, um, it, it can't evolve. Mm. Mm. Right. And so, tech, so when you take technology and sex addiction, you marry those two into a cocaine for the soul, it's not going to develop. So we're going to have immature cultures getting worse. So it's fun working with sexual addiction because on the on the upside, they get well so quickly, you know, so, because they're addicts. You know, if they really want to do something, they put their mind to it. They do the disciplines. They get results. They have a system to protect themselves in the future. And they can stay well. Like I've been clean for 37 years and I've had an incredible life. I've written out 40 books and done all this stuff. Like, you know, these people are usually real leaders and creatives and powerful people trapped in this cage of pornography and sexual addiction that they don't know who they really would be. If they could have a glimpse of that for even 30 seconds of what they could be without this in their family, in their life, in their own self-awareness, they would drop this thing so quickly. Yeah. So, so on that point, cause you know, I've, I've worked with, um, you know, drug addicts and one of the most frustrating things mm -hmm. is relapse. Mm -hmm. So yeah. in, in your field, what's, What's the take on on relapse? Does it happen as much as say when we're talking about alcohol addiction? No, it really doesn't. Because first of all, um, with sex acts, most of them are brought in as couples because of the external crisis. So they have a lot more on the line. A divorce can cost them hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Uh, loss of reputation, loss of uh, their standing in a spiritual, political, social community that they have evolved in. Um, they have a lot more at stake. And with the polygraph, they have no more secrets. So they can't get away with it 
like, you know, just kind of sneak off and say, well, no one's going to know because someone is going to know. So that does prevent that. I mean, do relapses happen? Yes, they don't have to happen. And they, and they if they're making phone calls every, every day, that's a discipline of socialization. So if they're disciplined in doing the socialization, when they have pain, they're taught to make a phone call before they go to their, their um, addiction. And so it's a lot less. I mean, it really is. We have a really high success rate on people getting well because they have a support team. They have the right, they know what type of sex act they are. Their spouse hopefully is getting help. We've done psychological tests. We know if there's other conditions we need to deal with. And they, they, they feel intelligent by even Friday on what they've got to do to get better. And there's all this material that we've created over 30 some years that niches certain things they have to address like sex after recovery, uh, boundaries, you know, being unstuck, like all this stuff, because we've been doing this for so long, we kind of found the niches and our Facebook groups tell us all the time, oh, you need to do something on this. And we get enough of those, we do something on that. Okay. Because it's like, okay, we don't want to keep answering the same email, just like you guys know. And so, uh, but talk about impact. Here's an interesting fact, and it's uh, kind of anecdotal, but most guys I've worked with is talking about 5,000 sample plus who have been entrepreneurs, business owners, or control their own income, have doubled or more than doubled their income in a 12-month period of being sober. So you take that, that's your financial development. Now you can apply that to spiritual, emotional, social, sexual, and you can see the life dramatically improve in quality. It really yeah. highlights the, it's, a, it's an opportunity for people to see these these. Comple this complex of of uh, beautiful things that make up a great life, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, there's a perhaps we have in in some societies a, a you know height focused on money, or perhaps in others we have a height and focus on spirituality, but it's mm -hmm. really the broad spectrum coming together and all feeding each other. To think mm -hmm. that my the the quality of my relationship is going to enhance my uh, if not my increase in money, at least my enjoyment and my valuation well, of money. Well, you know, plus it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's better sex because I actually teach them how to have sex. Eyes open, lights on, nurturing conversation, be emotionally present. Now, the first time I suggest that they think I'm crazy, but I've never had one person out of thousands come back and say you were wrong. Okay. And yeah, I'm really this. hating this. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of guys and women say that this has been the best sex of our marriage. Okay. So for someone who's a sex addict, and I'm saying you're going to be richer, you're going to have better sex, you're going to have a better quality of life. It's an easy sell, right? That's a good advert. Yeah. <laughs> and, you don't, and you don't have to buy a product to do it. You know, you, it, it's within you. And, and I was just thinking, because that's one of the things. I mean, you've got guilt, certainly, for actions mm. I've done. But it's that shame thing of, of you know, mm. I am a broken thing, getting getting past that. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's why I can see the five days is a really valuable thing because that's uh, that relapse thing, Matt. You know, the, mm. it's just having the opportunity to just keep your feet on the, you know, on the forward mm. movement. And we have we have uh, we have like fifty to sixty phone groups. So we have people from your country, Europe, Africa, South Af South America, in phone groups from all over the world because they don't have these resources, and so they can get help wherever they are. You know, and actually, uh, there's a Dr. Faye in Australia who's certified, and she's brilliant at this stuff. Oh, she understands all three, and she's to be someone you guys should talk to sometime. Uh, but she's awesome, and she came in did even did intensive training in her office in in uh, Colorado. Uh, Dr. Faye, if you send me an email, I can get you or go to the ASAT, ASAT, ASAT.org. 
Look her up. She's in Australia. Right. Uh, but she's brilliant. Truly brilliant. I just read her dissertation. It's, it's brilliant. Okay. And so um, there is emerging help coming across the different parts of the world. But in some countries, it's a little slower because we've been doing this since about the uh, early 90s, okay, in America. But we're, you know, <laughs> we have a lot of sex addicts for sure. <laughs> and we produce most of the pornography in the world, sad to say. Yes, yes, you're a bit, a bit of an un, uh, an unpleasant um, uh, success aspect. Mm -hmm. I, we've been talking beautifully. I mean, we've got we, we've kind of I mean, we could talk forever, but we're kind of getting to the, uh, that sort of sweet spot where people say I've I've really absorbed enough for now. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I wonder if you know what have we? Is there something that we've missed that's particularly important, or perhaps just a just a wrap up of, of, yeah, of what you? The way I'd like to wrap up is. You know, if you're listening to this and you feel like there isn't any hope, I'm telling you there is. You need to get take the next step. You, if your spouse wants to go, if not, if you're the spouse, you take the next step. There's hope, there's healing, there's freedom, and you can live an incredible life. I'm proof of that, and you can be too. That's how I like to wrap up. I like to wrap up that there's actually hope. You know, you don't have to stay addicted. You don't. This is a free world. You have a free will, and you can, you're completely neuroplastic. So decide how you want to become and become that. Yeah, absolutely. If we can, the wonderful thing about nature is it gives us the same capacities uh, to do with what we can. And mm -hmm. uh, it's almost like if you can turn yourself into that direction, you can use the same mechanisms to turn yourself the yeah. other. Uh, what a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. Uh, Matt, I, I don't think there's anything better we can we can conclude with. No, that's brilliant. I'm just so glad that we got to connect with you, Dr. Weiss. And um, thank you so thank much you so for much. being here on our podcast. Thank you so much, guys. Well, Matt, we, we were right. He was, he was fascinating. What was it? The intimacy anorexic. That, mm. that kind of fascinated me. Yeah. Not so much because uh, isolating that and making that a big term, but just that there's two edges to the sword, that you mm. know, there's overdoing it and then there's underdoing it. And there's, mm. it just gets so messy and confusing. Relationships. I guess are hard enough, but when you add that beautiful part of relationships, which is the intimacy and the sexual contact, and that becomes uh, dysfunctional or mismanaged or hard or unpleasant, uh, I'm so it's, it's wonderful work he's doing. It is, it is, and uh, bringing people back together to you know be in true intimacy, mm -hmm. and uh, really at the core of it, uh, you know whether it's a sex addiction or alcohol or other drugs, you know it's it's really comes down to the same thing. You know, there's an object, you know, that we're addicted to you know, that is you know covering something up or, or trying to, to deal with something. And uh, in this particular field, I was I was glad when he said you know, when we asked about relapse, they don't see a lot of relapse. Because once you're connected, that's yeah. dealing with the underlying problem, right? Yes, yes, yes. There's there's a there's a sort of a help here that once you find the beauty in um in that sexual behaviour with somebody who you love or with somebody who is of great uh, of great joy to you, yeah. Uh, who wants to get rid of that? <laughs> yeah, who wants to lose that? <laughs> that's right. And then you gain so much more uh, energy um, for all of the other things of life. Um, like he said, you know, the entrepreneur was making so much more money and. All the, all the rest of the added benefits. <laughs> mm, beautiful meaning. Right. Well, there we go, Matt. And uh, remember, everybody, just check out the show notes and see where you can connect with him. Uh, go into Amazon, just uh, type in his name. The 30 or 40 books will come up, which are which is really fantastic. Uh, 
go in and watch this on our YouTube channel. So yep. The Science of Psychotherapy, please go in and just subscribe. Let us know you're coming in and, and you'll see all the fabulous stuff. A couple of our documentaries are available there as long along with hundreds of other fabulous, um, informative and interesting uh, videos. Fantastic. Thank you so much for dropping into The Science of Psychotherapy and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thank you.